Hey, this is Joe Bakmutsky, and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. Right now, you're going to hear from Rochelle, who is a cancer survivor. And what's really amazing about Rochelle is that she can articulate what this cancer adventure has been like for her in a way that's universal. So that even if your experience is different, you can still find so much that you can relate to. I really hope that we can find an hour or two with Rochelle somewhere down the line, because there's just so much to unwrap. But for now, enjoy. Rosh, thank you so much for doing this. I've been really, really looking forward to it. So, Rosh, first of all, tell me, how did you react when you found out that you had cancer? Obviously, there was a huge element of shock. My symptoms were nothing more than a shallow cough, um, a reasonable amount of weight loss, um, and a little bit of exhaustion. But given that I had a newborn son, weight loss during breastfeeding was very normal to me. And exhaustion is obviously part of the newborn package. And I am sort of prone to coughing and throaty type illness, um, generally speaking. Um, I don't get sick very often, but if I ever, ever do, it's normally a cough. So I really didn't notice. So I think the shock of not actually feeling particularly unwell and then discovering as a gross optimist, I think I told you earlier, <laughs> I'm, I'm terribly optimistic, discovering something as significant and severe as cancer as a diagnosis was shocking and almost a little bit unbelievable. So when you say unbelievable, how long did this feeling last for? Did it change? Yeah, I think um, um, my father is a medic, um, he, so he quickly diagnosed me. Um, I, I often joke that he thinks he's like a diagnostician like Dr. House from the <laughs> TV show. So he, I think he semi-diagnosed me and sent me to a doctor and as soon as I saw her she sent me for a CT scan and shortly after that a biopsy so I knew very quickly that something was going on but I hadn't no one actually had used the c word so I didn't actually um, kind of understand the severity of what I was being tested for or what what was suspect right um so I think when she then called me in on the morning of my birthday. Oh, um, no. <laughs> yep, 8.30 a.m. To say, listen, Michelle, you've, you've got Hodgkin's lymphoma. That shock was probably the result of just really not having any understanding that that's what was potentially on the cards. As soon as I saw the oncologist the next day and he told me my odds and told me my treatment plan, shock really dissolved almost instantly into, right, action stations, let's crack on, we've just got to get better. So the shock didn't last very long for me. I think it possibly lasted a little bit longer for my partner and my family, but I transitioned very quickly into I just need to get through this. Yeah, good, good on you, Rosh, because it's, it's, you're completely unprepared, right, when it happens? Completely unprepared, yeah. And also if you've never had, like I've not had really been to hospital I've not really ever been unwell in any significant way I've never had much involvement with the medical profession so part of the shock is not only oh my goodness I have cancer which is something that surely just happens to other people part of the um, discomfort initially is also and I'm being scanned and I'm in a hospital and I've never had a biopsy before and I'm seeing doctors that I don't know um, who are pretty much taking control of my life. And 
that's uncomfortable and very unfamiliar. So yeah, you're correct. Yeah, it sounds like it's, it was incredibly overwhelming. Like, how did you transition from that moment where, you know, of shock uh, to go into, uh, you know, as you say, um, action mode? Uh, like, what, what sort of things did, did you do? And, you know, how did you plan, plan your life around it? I think I transitioned from shock into action mode an enormous amount due to my character. So the fact that I am quite positive, I feel very comfortable taking control, generally speaking, in life. So that was my natural default. Um, but I also think that I chose to completely trust my oncologist and the medical team who were advising me. I could have decided not to, but he told me my odds. So I was 75% going to be fine, 25% not. And I was determined to be in the 75. And I didn't start surfing Google and looking online and trying to find answers. I really, I think I just believed. Later on, I did start to have, you know, do a bit of my own research, but pretty much trusting in the advice that I was being given by my lead oncologist allowed me to settle into, okay, I assume he knows what he's doing. If, If I just listen to what he says and get through this, then I'll be fine. There was, yeah, it didn't serve me to hold on to the panic or the distress, um, I luckily avoided anger. So I know a lot of people get very angry and a lot of people have talked to me in the past about why me, why is this happening to me, this is so unfair. I don't know how I avoided that, but I didn't experience that. Yep. I did experience that this is very difficult and uncomfortable and later on sad. Absolutely. And you mentioned, you mentioned trust. That, that's such a key component, isn't it? Because I know that when, like when I got diagnosed and I went to see my oncologist, the fact that this was a person that I felt I could, I could trust that, um, I think it was even a conscious decision, decision for me. It really helped me to go, right. Um, this, this is happening. You know, there's an action plan. I know what to do and I can trust this person to help me make decisions. Was, was this like a conscious decision yeah. for you as well? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was conscious because it's quite unnatural to trust an unknown to the level that we are forced to at that stage of things. So, um, yeah, I, I think I did decide to trust him. He was very um, clear in the way that he explained my diagnosis, my prognosis, my treatment plan. Um, he wasn't amazing at accessing me perhaps and what mattered to me as a as a person or as a young mum or any of those types of things. But he was, you know, in part sensitive to it, but he was certainly very clear. And I did have, you know, my doctor father at home waiting in the wings and kind of backing up, I suppose, what I had been told. And I didn't feel like I had a choice, to be honest. So I think that the, the most challenging thing for me at the start was that I had to hand over my life and the running of my life and the major decisions in my life to others and that I had to follow suit unless I had a very strong reason (laughs) otherwise in which, and I didn't in this instance. So, yeah, the early day challenge for me was once the shock wore off was the relinquishing of control and the, the letting go and accepting this is how it's going to be for a period of time until hopefully life goes back to normal. Absolutely. And was there anything that helped you along the way? Did you make 
notes at all? Did you bring someone to the appointments with your specialist? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So the, um, someone told me right at the beginning that aside from chemo brain making things a little bit foggy, just the emotion and the exhaustion of going through the treatment um, means that it's sometimes hard to remember or to think on the spot. And also because I'm not used to seeing doctors, it's an interesting power play or relationship patient doctor. So someone said to me, um, it's really important to write your questions that you would like to ask in your next appointment as even throughout the week. So in leading up to going to see him, just jot down the things that you, you're feeling you wouldn't mind asking him. And so I, I went into each appointment with some written questions. So if I had nothing else to ask, at least I referred to those. Having said that, though, he was really adamant, don't write everything onto your list of questions if there's something really disturbing you or <laughs> or uncomfortable or physically um, difficult ring. So um, he was also very clear that there was time in between appointments to phone in. But, yeah, the doctor also had said to me, um, it's very hand. People find it very handy to write questions and bring them in. So that's what I did each, actually, every appointment. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I know that it really helped me because um, I only started doing it after some time because I, I realized that uh, every time I walked out of the oncologist office, I, I realized that there was like about ten things that I yeah, forgot yeah, to ask exactly. him. So I started doing it out of necessity almost. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I think that's why I got the advice. Yeah, it's only once you leave you say, "Oh, I wish I would have asked about this, that, and the other." Yeah, it's exactly, I suppose, the rationale for it. Yeah, and Rush, um, what about your family, your friends? Like, how did they react? And, and did they support you in a way that you wanted to be supported? Um, my family was unbelievable. I, Stephen, my partner, was incredible. My parents were phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Um, they did a lot for us to help care for my our two young boys. The boys were a blessing because... Uh, a lot of people say, oh, my goodness, you know, cancer with two young children, but um, there's never really a great time to have cancer. But actually, in hindsight, the wonderful thing about the boys was when everyone looked at me with sad eyes all the time, the boys didn't because they understood but only, I mean, Harry understood nothing. He was a baby and Jack was only two and a bit. So they may have sensed that something wasn't quite right, but they were just beautiful little boys so they just went on being themselves and there was something really really comforting and refreshing uh, about the fact that in their company I wasn't ever needing to react to what might be going on for them so that was the innocence of their little smiles and those faces was actually really wonderful um, but my family was incredible a lot of my parents friends were unbelievably supportive and aunts and uncle, aunties and uncles. A couple, my cousin and his wife were un, incredible, um, just coming and helping and not even asking if they were needed, just making a regular visit that was just so comforting and also just lovely to be in their company. Friends of my mum's and my dad's cooked constantly. <laughs> yeah. um, it was sort of wonderful to be sort of constantly fed. Um, there are a few dishes that I can't even make in my own home now without thinking of those people who made them for me all the time. 
Um, and some of my friends were just amazing, amazingly supportive just to be there and to listen and to talk and to send love. Others also made food. Some came and took my son and I out to play, you know, each week. Um, sometimes they just came and sat by my bed when I was feeling pretty crappy from the chemo. Um, and interestingly, I think we've spoken earlier about the fact that it's not always the people that you necessarily expect. So there were also people who out of nowhere I would never have anticipated were so phenomenally kind without any expectation of acknowledgement or gratitude, just who were there um, and just doing really kind, thoughtful, helpful and regularly contributing. Um, and then there were others who we joked earlier also about who um, potentially do some of what they do for a bit of accolade. And that's okay too. Um, different people are motivated by different things. But, um, yeah, I felt unbelievably supported even though a lot of the time I kind of just wanted to go inside and just sort it out myself. So there's a, a huge amount of support received but there's an isolating experience to the cancer experience I think to some extent as well. I know that when I was going through this experience and when when I had those people in my life who I believe just completely disappeared or dropped off the radar mm, yeah. uh, I know that I felt um, incredibly angry for, for, yeah. for large chunks of time and how did you deal with those uh, with yeah. those emotions or if any, did anything like that come up? Yeah, yeah. So I'm the daughter of a psychiatrist and psychologist. <laughs> so we spend a lot of time understanding why people do the things they do and I suppose I naturally excuse people for behaving the way that they behave. But it's a to it's, I completely understand your experience and that feeling of disappointment almost yep. um, as much as anger. I think the reality is some people just don't know how to respond. Uh, they're not sure what the right thing to do is. They're not coping necessarily in themselves with the fact that they might even be distressed about the fact that you're unwell. Um, and that sometimes causes inertia, almost a, a lack of action. I'm so frightened. I don't quite know what to do, so I'm just going to freeze and do nothing. Um, in actual fact, it's almost better to say, hi, I don't know what to do, but I'm caring than it is to just do nothing. And I think um, that's why some people get angry and a bit disappointed because the people who they may expect can step up sometimes just can't. And then out of the woodworks come these others who you least expect it, who just completely nail it and know exactly what the right thing to do is. I also had uh, exactly the same experience where some people are completely natural and, you know, giving you the support that you need. It, yeah. And it feels, and it feels very natural and real and authentic. Uh, and some people, I think one of the thing that for me that was, I think the worst after completely, um, you know, ignoring the whole thing was people who came in and who would come in and say, uh, just let me know how I can help. And, yeah. and that was like for me infuriating yeah. because I was like, <laughs> <laughs> not not only yeah. not only like you're just putting this on me right because now i have to come up with a way to ask you for yeah. a favor yeah <laughs> so know? that's and that's i think what i was alluding to before it's not easy to always know the way in which to offer support but yes yeah, sometimes asking sometimes just doing and contributing in the best way that you think you can 
is more of a help than expecting the, the cancer patient to try and work out exactly the way in which you can assist. Um, yeah, the funny thing on the food front for us was uh, a woman who I've grown, who's known me my whole life did a lot of cooking for us and she's an unbelievable cook, so it was great. <laughs> but um, I joked with her one day when she was visiting and I was feeling really rubbish from chemo and I wasn't really in the mood for seeing anyone but I let her come in because she's just like an auntie. And she said, well, tell me what's going on. How are we on the food front? And I said, I can't even hear the word osso let alone smell it. <laughs> and she said, okay, let's just make sure. No. And she put the word out. She doesn't want osso Don't make it. Um, <laughs> and I think it was just because it's easy to freeze. So I got a lot of the same dishes. And it was only with her that I could joke and laugh. But the humour with which she took it on and directed traffic almost on my behalf for meals to start to be the ones that would suit my palate or that would not be also booker for a period of time. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's hard to do the knowing, maybe even asking the carers um, rather than the person who's going through cancer. Is it, you know, do you know what the right, the most helpful thing I could do is? Um, and also to some extent, I found it really hard watching the impact of my cancer on the people around me. So when I talk about the the people who were incredibly kind and supportive, they weren't always actually in touch with me. Some of those people were just incredibly kind and supportive to Stephen and to my mum and dad because they they needed support too. It was really exhausting. So that yeah, there are other ways that you can help rather than feeling like you need to really access access the patient. It's crazy, isn't it? That sometimes. Uh, your partner, uh, your parents, um, you, you know, your family, sometimes they're more impacted by this even than you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very hard conversation to have a lot of the time. But, yes, there were aspects of what I went through that I thought, aside from the physical symptoms of chemo, it was easier on me than it was on them. And sometimes I guess they get overlooked because they need support as well. Do you think that um, they had the support that they needed to kind of be there for you because I guess every, uh, I guess all the focus I mean I remember when I was going through treatment I mean I guess the focus is on me and uh, you know as much as I love to be in the center of attention <laughs> but at the same time they need help as well and do, do you feel that uh, your partner and your parents um, because do they have the support that they needed? I think they did a, they supported each other a lot I think they also had some significant others in their experience of my cancer who they would say the same similar things to what I say there were some standout people who just were supportive and kind and considerate beyond measure and then there were others who perhaps didn't step up but really had no wherewithal to know what to do yeah it become, becomes a whole community thing yeah, doesn't it yeah so Rosh I know that you um you have your own marketing business and it must have been like a real challenge keeping up with all that like when you were, when you were facing cancer what was it like and how did it all, all work out it was sort of lucky in a way because I had just had Harry my second son I was off work and so the business because it's my own and because the client a lot of the client service was my own the business was sort of wound down to just what the people who work with me could manage. There wasn't there wasn't a huge amount that I was supposed to be involved in at the time. So I kind of just gave myself, it was like I was on enforced maternity leave, really. So I took the time and I didn't really think about work. The impact, 
mostly was I possibly didn't start to build up the client base again as quickly after having Harry as perhaps I would have. I just gave myself a little bit more time to get well and recover before I decided to really get back into the full swing of work. It's far more complicated for a lot of other people and certainly people that I've spoken to in relation to time off and loss of income and the impact of cancer can be immense for many others. But I I, um, was sort of in that little maternity leave zone. So when when the cancer treatment phase hit me, it was when I wasn't working particularly anyway, so it was all right. Yeah, that's good to hear. And, and can say you know it's very tough to deal with mental as as we both know because you're constantly in between treatments and you're waiting for results and when you're waiting to hear from your specialist you really feel you like angry and frustrated and, and just um, overwhelmed like no not knowing what to do with it all is there anything that um, helped you to be more positive? I think I'm naturally very positive, so positive probably wasn't such a problem for me. I distinctly remember though phases almost of my chemo so like 10 I'm 10 years all clear so even 10 years on I can almost remember the difference between chemo one chemo two chemo three like it it was a definitely a, a, an experience and I don't love using the word journey for in, <laughs> in this space but it sort of was to some extent I without any specific training in mindfulness or meditation I think I went at times into almost this meditative state. So when I was feeling really knocked about by the chemo, um, which as we know, so that's cumulative. So the first chemo I was like, oh, I was still on holidays and I just had a little <laughs> afternoon nap. Um, so when I'd had my first chemo, I thought I am just one of those freak humans. I'm a superstar. This is going to be fine. Um, and then I had the second one and I went, oh, okay. And then I had the third one and I was smashed. So I think the reality check of it's not as easy the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh time as it is the first time. So so some of it was just lying still for long periods of time, which is super unnatural for me. Being incapacitated, I couldn't watch television, I couldn't read. I went through stages of bright lights and a lot of noise being quite uncomfortable, only for specific days after chemo, but it, um, it meant that, there was almost no stimulation that was um, tolerable and obvious, and then all of the stomach and internal kind of discomfort from, I suppose, poisoning. So, so it was sort of digging deep into reserves of calm and resilient and patient that this was hugely uncomfortable and physically distressing as well as emotionally distressing, but... I had to just get through it. Um, and upon reflection, the only explanation I can give is that I did kind of just go into this blank space where I tried to focus away from the pain. I didn't panic about the future and I tried not to think, dwell too much on exactly what was happening to me in relation to the cancer, but I just had to let time pass. So those were possibly the most challenging days. And I remember having a couple of really distinctly disturbing, almost um, uncomfortable, um, they weren't hallucinations. I don't quite know how to describe it. But where my mind and my brain was really, really smashed by the chemo and I wasn't able to think and I wasn't comfortable in my thoughts. But I sort of got through that and it didn't come back again. That was probably chemo three. 
Um, and then chemo four was sort of all right. Like I had the physical discomfort, but I ne- my mind never went into that place again. And I think it was just from a, keeping myself calm and a little bit distracted. So how, how did you do that uh, in terms of like your daily practice? Does it, would, would you get time to, for yourself to go for a walk? I tried to go for walks when I could, just gentle, gentle walks, you know. I mean, you, you imagine that it's like having an old person all of a sudden having, I mean, no, my body was unable to do a lot of the things that it used to do. I'm normally very fit and active and and healthy um so gentle walks um sometimes i'd even just i had we we um got these two fold-out chairs for the garden which seemed like the simplest thing steve and my partner went and bought them but just sitting in one of those with a cushion and just letting a bit of sunshine on my face every so often and um we had a big tree in the back garden we just sit under it i think just being outside having harry play around me or just being with one of the boys even if they were just sort of pottering around or he was playing on a play mat, um, just hanging out with them was really, really rejuvenating to some extent. Um, and gentle, like I had conversation, I had people in the house. Um, I, was, I don't remember being completely isolated to my home, but I also really don't think I did much else. I can't remember any specific major outings. I don't remember socialising hugely during the time of my treatment. So, yeah, it was just gentle, enjoying a bit of human contact and yeah. mostly just staying calm and quiet. There was a lot of quiet time, much more quiet time than I ever have in my real life nowadays, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything in Russian hindsight that you would have done differently in terms of how you approach and treatment? And the time that rejuvenation, having your own space? I don't know if it would have been possible, but I wish I had journaled. Yep. Um, and I'm, re- I don't, I'm not a regret person. I don't tend to hold on to regrets, but there is a little part of me that wishes I had written during my treatment, during my cancer experience of the treat and the, throughout the treatment phase. Partly because I wish I had a bit more clarity around a few things. Um, part of the side effects of being an optimist is you block out very negative experience um so there's parts of what i experience that i actually genuinely can't access um my protective mechanism must just shut that down um so i feel a little bit like i wish i could more accurately recall certain aspects of what happened um also i think i feel like there would be value in the sharing of it yep and so i suppose i could sit down now and write upon reflection Um, which A, is challenging because it takes me back there and there are days now where I would rather not have to go (laughs) dig deep back into what that was all like. Um, But also I think it's a bit clouded by being 10 years out the other side. It's possibly not as accurate as it would have been. So I wish I would have um, journaled, but not. I'm not sure what else I really could have done differently. Um, I think I celebrated the milestones reasonably well. I, I made my oncologist sign a five-year all-clear certificate that I made for myself, <laughs> which he thought was hilarious and I only got him to do it because I swore that I'd never use it against him in a court of law. Um, and I took um, chocolates back to the oncology ward for all the chemo nurses. Well, we did the same. Yeah, yeah. 
they were like, oh my god, angels descended yes, from another planet. Absolutely. Um, and that was really weird because I was busting to go in, and I, my Wednesday was my treatment day, so I knew that most of the ones who I had seen, if I came two Wednesdays in a row, would largely be there based on their shifts. But having to go back there two Wednesdays after I didn't need to be there anymore was hell. Um, but I went back and took them chocolates, and I think that was – I love that I did that still. And it was a really funny and fun half an hour. But I think, no, I think I managed myself as well as I could have. I think I showed appreciation for the people who loved me and who I care about and who cared about me as much as I – hopefully as much as I could have. I think I still maintained contact with my boys even when I was feeling rubbish. There's t- I have a, t- I have a little tiny part of me where I look at photos of Harry particularly because Jack was already two. But I look at Harry in those few months when I know my treatment was taking place and I there's this, this vague sense of did I miss out a little bit on that tiny patch of his life. But I don't. I don't dwell on it too much because he's such a cool kid and we've got such a good relationship, it's fine. But um, I don't think, I can't imagine what else I could have done. I just, I do, there's a little part of me that does wish that I'd written it down. Rosh, one of the things that helped me was I was, for my first cycle of chemo um, in hospital, I was put into the same room, which is by pure luck. Um, well, not pure luck, this was really intervention by uh, the, the amazing nurses that we had. Well, I was paired in with a, with a guy who went through basically um, the same thing as I did and he was on his last cycle which was which was really cool because he was able to guide me through, you know, give yeah. me some tips yeah. like yeah. about um, you know, managing your energy and what to expect. It was a really bizarre uh, incident because I actually went to, to school with him. Really? <laughs> that was bizarre. Wow. Um, so it was pretty amazing. It was something that really helped me. Did you come across someone along, uh, you know, your cancer adventure that um, went through similar sort of experience and was able to share that with you? Um, I just have to pick up on the fact that you just said cancer adventure. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, maybe that's the word instead of journey we all need to start using, but I'm not sure it would go down well with, with everybody. <laughs> like you, I had, yes. I had the word journey. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and it's interesting. So people come out of the woodworks. I was contacted by someone who had, who was my, um, my parents' generation, who had had Hodgkin's lymphoma, and she just phoned me out of the blue and said, I've heard and I just want to tell you that I went through it. And she was absolutely lovely. But the interesting thing, I suppose, was she focused quite a lot of what she wanted to tell me on um, sourcing a good wig for when I lost my hair. Um, And it was interesting because she was was lovely and, you know, genuinely um, offering some support. But I couldn't have cared less about I mean, I have big, long brown curls, so I didn't, I wasn't like imagining ever having lost, having, you know, have to go bald. It just wasn't even on my radar. I couldn't have cared less. I just thought I'm sick and I've got cancer and I need to get better and I'll put a headscarf on. I don't know. I hadn't even, it hadn't occurred to me. So it was, it was strange to, in the first instance, get help from someone who had had exactly my cancer, who was focusing on an issue that was exactly not my issue. The flip side of that was when I had finished my treatment, I heard about this service that the Cancer Council offers called Cancer Connect. And 
that provides specifically the opportunity for people who phone into the Cancer Council to talk to someone who has had a similar cancer diagnosis or experience um, or treatment or who is in a similar life stage. And I think I would have loved something like that when I was going through it just to normalise, I think, to some extent what's going on, to talk to someone else who has had what I have. But I didn't find out about that until after I was better. So, yeah. Probably like most people. So is that why you got involved with it? Yeah. So then I I found out about it because I picked up a brochure when I was actually waiting to see my <laughs> oncologist. And I was reading it thinking, this is brilliant. Why? <laughs> yeah. and, why, and actually, why didn't I know? And with my marketing hat on, why the hell didn't I know? And exactly. how come this isn't better promoted to me? And instantly jotting down all the ways in which this message could have gotten out to me throughout my treatment. So then I contacted the Cancer Council to say I had never heard about this and these are all the ways in which it could have gotten to the message could have gotten to me and how do I apply? And they listened to me, gave me a little bit of information and then said, Rochelle, it's wonderful that you want to volunteer and it sound, you sound like just the right type of person. However, sweetheart, you've just finished your chemo. <laughs> and we won't, they, they basically wouldn't accept anyone into the program until 18 months after their last treatment, which at the time I thought was absurd. But then Why upon, do reflection, you have to wait? upon reflection, it's genius because there's no way you're in a position straight after you finish treatment to start supporting others. There's a little way to go I think um, there's quite a lot that went on for me and you know for most people once the treatment finishes and you start to sort of get back into rebuilding your life after cancer you probably need a little bit of time to focus on yourself and to get that sorted before you start to open your mind and your heart and your um, listening capacity to hear others talk about their experience. It's it's interesting that you mentioned that. So before we get back to Cancer Connect, like in terms of, you know, this whole process, I guess, of putting yourself back together and uh, I guess because this experience changes you, um, did you feel that you started to look at life in a different way and also maybe even reassess your life before cancer? Yeah. Oh, gosh, how long do we have? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, I'll try and pick the key points. I often, I often describe it um, as if you're looking through life through a magnifying glass and everything that's really important just gets extra sharp and crystal clear and huge and everything that's not important doesn't actually make it into the picture. So there's almost, I don't think I changed what I thought was important. I think I just sharpened my focus on it and recognised that there was a whole lot of other stuff that didn't warrant my attention. Um, so I think that was certainly the result of cancer. I also think it could be the result of moving into middle age. So sometimes I'm like, was it my cancer or is it just the fact that I'm older? Um, but I think it, I think it's both and I think it's definitely partly the cancer. I think initially I was on an unbelievable high. So every week away from chemo was a week of awesome. <laughs> And as I rebuilt my health, because it, you cumulatively grow stronger and more well in the same way that you cumulatively get iller from the chemo. So the more I moved away from chemo treatments, the more I started to exercise and be active and get back into my normal life. At six months, I thought, you know, I'm flying. But actually, at 12 months, I looked back and went, oh, gosh, at six months, you were still 
you know, barely putting the pieces back together. So I think I started on a real high and then it was only probably four or five months later that the actual reality of what had happened hit me. And I actually think that is the first time. I think it hit me then significantly harder than when I first even found out I was sick. Wow. So like the, the magnitude of it all? I think the set, I think the fact that it happened to me and that I wasn't looking from above down on myself thinking you just got to get through this head down rush, you can do it, go, go, go. But more looking down on myself and thinking, wow, that happened to you. That was really sad and really intense and really challenging and you did good girl <laughs> yeah, yeah. but I think the sad the magnitude and the sadness like it still hits me now even just telling you that that was the real turning point and then also acceptance and just let letting myself feel really sad and really distressed for the first time about what had happened and feeling proud of how I'd managed it and grateful that I was lucky enough to be here. But still, I think more the sadness and distressing factors really kind of kicked in. And probably because I was safely on the other side. I think when you're in the middle of the treatment, you, there's not time or energy that can be spent addressing some of that emotional stuff. It's really just hold yourself together physically because it's physically very debilitating. Once you're out, once I was out the other side, It was like, oh, good, you're well now, you're safe. Now, <laughs> now let's lose it emotionally a little bit, you know, about what was going on. So that that to some extent hit me. And in, interestingly, that was also a turning point for being able to look forward. So straight after I got well, Stephen, my other half, was very much, right, let's plan holidays, let's, what can we do next and what's our future entail and let's do some five-year visioning and I um, really wanted to look to the future and I absolutely couldn't. Yeah. And I didn't know I couldn't until he pointed it out to me at one day when we were having a conversation and, and I was like, well, of course I can. You know, I love planning for the future. But then I realized, no, he's absolutely right. I can't. I couldn't. I just could appreciate the here and now and get excited about tomorrow. But planning past that, it was actually just too stressful. And I'm not that easily stressed and I'm not naturally anxious. I don't anticipate the worst. I just wanted to just stay right here and right now. And then at that sort of four or five-month point when I really got upset, I suppose, about what had happened, I dealt with it and then I, that triggered this sort of capacity to all of a sudden plan for the future again and get excited about the longer term. But they were probably the two, yeah, the two things that what changed the most It was the sharpening of the focus of what's important and then the flip finally of being able to plan again for the future. Yeah, because all of a sudden you realize that every day is a gift, right? And, and then naturally, uh, as you mentioned, all of your um, sort of priorities automatically shift and, and everything that is not needed just falls by the wayside, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was at the moment when you felt that now I have I have the capacity um, to help others to be part of, of Cancer Connect. How how was that experience? Like, was it, was it emotionally rewarding? Was was it draining at the same time? And would you recommend it to others? So I thought I could join Cancer Connect like three days after my chemo finished. I think, as I mentioned, <laughs> so then they made me wait, which was great. Um, 
I don't, I, I think I felt like it was something that I would have appreciated whilst I was going through it and therefore I should get involved because how could I not want to help others in the same circumstance? So I probably went into it with a very much a giving hat on. What I didn't necessarily anticipate was how much I would receive from getting involved. The training itself was really incredible, partly because it's very good training and you do a lot of role playing and there's a lot of active listening skills and just, you know, various protocols and guidelines to do with the actual program, but also a lot of just interesting interpersonal skills about peer support over a phone and what, you know, what helps and what doesn't help. So I really enjoyed that in terms of the learning, but more than anything, I really enjoyed being in a room full of people in the club, (laughs) Um, (laughs) which was really phenomenal and slightly unexpected. That was the bit I probably hadn't anticipated. I think I mentioned to you earlier, I mean, even telling those totally inappropriate cancer jokes in a room full of (laughs) cancer people, you can, you can kind of, you laugh, you, when we laughed at things together that sometimes you're laughing and then almost simultaneously crying, but you couldn't do that with anyone else. It's just, it, it absolutely is just one of those things that if you haven't been through it, I can't really explain it. And so I think some of it was also that reality of the value of Cancer Connect was in that training when you're talking about the third day after your second chemo and the people opposite you are going, yeah, but you haven't explained it yet. But you don't have to because they know exactly they know. what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So it's that capacity to talk in shorthand about an experience that was monumental that yeah. would take a lot of explaining to someone else. And it's quite normalizing and reassuring. And just the characters, there were lots of wonderful characters in the room. People are all there for a similar reason. And that's attracts a certain type of person, I suppose. So that was, um, really enjoyable. Um, and also just to hear from other people about their experiences where some of them were so similar to mine, it was like holding a mirror up and others were so extraordinarily different that it was fascinating that we had been through the same thing, but with a completely different set of circumstances or, um, outcomes. So, yeah. And when you were talking to the people on the phone, people who were going through that. What did people want to talk about? And was there any topics that seemed to come up all the time? I often see that someone's cancer experience is as different and unique as their life experience. So there's not really two people who you can categorically say it's the same. Oh, yeah, it's just the same. But there are certainly some themes that come up. um, And a lot of the time it's just hearing, letting them talk about things like fear, confusion, a need for reassurance, anger, questioning, why did this happen to me? What am I supposed to do now? How the hell am I going to get through this? How am I going to rebuild my life afterwards? Sometimes it's whatever was going on before the cancer experience comes into the cancer experience and it hasn't gone away. My really annoying mother-in-law is driving me mad. (laughs) Okay, but did she drive me mad before? Yes, well, she's still going to drive me mad now. Um, And sometimes it's really specific questions about the treatment. Um, People want some reassurance around what side effects did you have? Can you tell me what happened to you? I'm not there yet, but I just want to hear from someone who's been through it. But largely it's listening. And I think sometimes just giving them the opportunity to talk about what they're going through and really listening and just responding with some genuine, uh aha, I hear you. 
I know. Oh my goodness. You know, it's just enough to normalize what they're going through and to make them feel like somebody who's been through it knows what they're talking about. Um, yeah, so it's you can't always anticipate what people will ring in about, but there are just, yeah, there are some things that feel familiar and that you feel equipped as a peer rather than a professional to provide support on. Yeah, Rosh, you know, it's interesting that you say that. Um, you know, like uh, I'm usually the type of person that, you know, if friends tell me about stuff, I'm usually the person that hits them with advice and maybe you should do this and yeah, do yeah. that. But it's interesting, like when I was when I was in hospital for chemo and uh, there was a, uh, an old friend, uh, we didn't really see each other all that much, but she showed up and she just listened to me for like an hour. And I was just like bitching about stuff, like I was just going off. And I realized that the tremendous... Uh, uplifting experience it was to just being listened to like yeah. listened to in a, like in a proper way where someone is just there just present not really not not really like giving you advice or telling you what to do but just just listening yeah absolutely and and a lot of what you learn from the cancer connect training is less is more actually when you're providing peer support you know two ears one mouth use them in that proportion but even more so really really just listen and give them an opportunity to speak and to share in an environment that they feel is safe and supportive. There are times in the Cancer Connect call where they ask specifically, tell me about what happened to you. I want to hear your experience. What did you feel when you went to chemo? What did? Right. How did you cope when your oncologist wasn't answering your questions like you wanted him to or her to or, um, there are times when they specifically are seeking your story and I found interestingly at the start how much should I share? Um, I'm out the other side so she's only in her first treatment. Do I tell her how bad it is by the time she gets to the fifth? <laughs> you know, like some, so sometimes yeah. there is a sensitivity around if they are asking you direct questions, what's appropriate in this circumstance to share? I shall never lie but maybe in the second or third call, I'll tell you about some of the more challenging symptoms that you're not necessarily feeling now because you don't, it, it needs to be support and care and honesty, but at the same time, you're not trying to f scare the crap out of them. Um, so there is, there is a, a huge responsibility to listen and to be honest when direct questions are asked. Um, but I certainly followed the approach of listen far more than I speak in terms of providing support, yeah. I think it's so amazing that you were doing that and you're doing that that now because so many folks just just need it because they, they just, for one reason or another, do not have the support that they need when they're going through it. Yeah, true. And, well, thank you. It is good. I mean, you can hear how much I talk. Imagine me trying to listen. No, no. <laughs> I, am, I, am also, I am also quite a good listener. But um, one of the interesting things that they do with the training is they offer two, you have two training sessions at the start and then you have a one-month break and then you do the third session. And it's very clever design because some people decide it's just not for them so they won't come to the third session because either they don't enjoy the experience or they realise the commitment is not something that they're prepared to give. But also for some it just brings up too much of their own difficult memories and they might not be ready. So a lot of the early training is also about deciding in yourself if you're ready to be in a place where you can offer support to others. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and Rosh, if you had a minute with someone who just recently got diagnosed with cancer, what would you tell them? I probably would ask them how they're feeling. And I don't know if I'd tell them much at all. I think I'd ask them, yeah, do they want to talk about it? And I'd tell them that I'm available if they do want to talk about it. And if not now, then any time that they feel the need. And if I had to tell them something, I would probably just tell them that it's really difficult and whatever they're feeling is okay. Yeah, that makes so much sense, Rosh. And uh, I know we, talk, we spoke about it earlier. Um, so we kind of met at the uh, survivorship event earlier. So you, you've obviously been speaking to a lot of specialists and research after that. Like in, in your opinion, um, uh, did that change you know that perspective in terms of interacting with someone someone like you someone who's went through this real life experience that you know that it's, it's is it like a missing link for a lot of folks out there who um, are doing research a specialist in the area to to be involved with, with someone who's went through cancer so when i was asked to speak at the conference for the benefit of those listening to us so obviously a conference where there were a lot of specialists talking and a lot of research presented and some keynote speakers from you know flown in from all over the world I asked about the validity of why on earth I would stand up and tell my story especially as I was a hodgy with a great story and a good outcome and here I am and they must have heard much more horrific things than what I had to share but I was actually told by one of the keynote speakers um, who I had the privilege of talking to before the event and he said Rochelle, it's vital that you stand up at the conference and tell us, tell us your story because otherwise we are going to get lost in statistics and statistical significance and the probability of and likelihood of and we might forget to address the whole person and we might forget to come together around the fact that there are people's lives with individual stories that we are actually addressing on a daily basis. So I think it's sort of like a reality check um, to have a survivor speak at a conference like that. And the warmth with which they responded was phenomenal, extraordinarily phenomenal for me. But I also think to some extent there is a really important space, uh, a requirement in this space for advocacy on behalf of the patient and on behalf of survivors um, so there's so many more cancer survivors now luckily because the the medical the medical profession has a, is allowing so many more of us to live and in some respects yeah I think it's important and I know now having done it the importance of having our stories told having them shared amongst the profession and not just as survivors with one another to give us a voice about what matters to us and what happens to us and what it feels like to be on the receiving end of oncology care or haematology care or even in clinical research trials and all those other things. I think it's important that there is a voice for the patient and the survivor. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, the, the, there is absolutely the voice that needs to be heard out there. Yeah. Thank you so much, Raj. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. 